only country, I think, where there's this kind of problem. If you're an Indian uh, and you're working in with patients in emergency uh, walk-in settings, you get your shot. So why is it a big deal here? This is a land of the free man. Right, I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we are back with Risk Management Monthly for uh, March 2020. And we have one of our key people back with us this month. I hope uh, I hope she says hello. It's Megan. And Megan is back from a little maternity leave and uh, her child is doing well and she's doing well. So Megan, it's always reassuring to have you back with us and keep Rick and I in line. So Rick. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, it's good to have you. All right. Now we need to uh, get going here and teach these people some some medical legal stuff. So you want to start out or me? Greg, why don't you start out? I, I have a bunch of little pieces from uh, Becker's Healthcare Review, uh, Becker's Hospital Review. And uh, when you read the show notes, they'll all be um, cited. And so they're not necessarily uh, about malpractice because the first one we're going to talk about is um, what the uh, OIG has recovered in fraud and abuse uh, for the last uh, years, actually the last 10 years, and see where that where the money's coming from. So, Greg, why don't you do that article? All right, we'll kick this off. Fraud and abuse. Uh, $2.6 billion. That, you know, that's a lot of money, Rick, uh, unless you're running for president, I guess. Uh, recovered in healthcare fraud in 2019. This is the 10th consecutive rear, uh, year <laughs> that uh, the Department of Justice has recovered more than $2 billion from settlements and judgments. Now, of interest is a few years back before medicine got going, it was the Defense Department where the government got all its money back. Not anymore. Uh, medicine is top of the list and over $2 million in judgments. Most of the money uh, came from the opioid marketing issues with drug companies, including $1.4 billion from um, the uh, RB group related to Suboxone marketing. Um, and that's interesting because doctors have almost pretended like for the first time in history, they believe the drug companies and oh, it, it couldn't have been the Suboxone that caused somebody to become addicted, could it, Rick? I have no idea, but everybody else seemed to know this. Um, but uh, doctors have pretended again, we didn't know exactly what happened. It was the mean drug companies that did it to us. Uh, this goes back, by the way, uh, as you will remember, back in the 90s when um, uh, billing companies were the big target of the federal government. Um, you, you rightly point out that J.D. McKean's billing company, of which uh, we were a customer, uh, was uh, taken and involved in this situation, and um, we did have to pay a little money. Now, as all these things with the federal government, you never pay everything, but you've got to pay something to get out of the deal. 
And uh, so it used to be the billing companies, and now it's the drug houses. What do you think? Well, you know, there are, are I remember, this was around 1999, 2000, um, when there was a big play regarding audits of emergency physician building companies and J.D. McKean's uh, company. J.D. was very well known in emergency medicine back in those days. He, um, I believe, also, did he, wasn't he president of a college? He was vice president. So the fact of the matter is, is he was pretty high up in the leadership. And I, I knew groups that were uh, his clients as well. And one of the problems was that Yes, it was the coding and billing companies that were kind of the bad boys here. Uh, but the guys who were paid were the doctors. So the doctors, they, they systematically upcoded, and the doctors were paid more money. And then the OIG says, well, well fine, the billing companies were the bad boys, but the doctors got the money, and, we want, it and we want it back. And so there was a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth um, over those incidents. And it wasn't just his company. There were a variety of companies who were getting nailed for um, their, their coding profiles. And I'm surprised, actually, that that that's kind of like gone away. And you see most of the money now coming from, you know, these fraudulent kind of things where there's these pill mills and, and drug companies and the like. And you don't hear much, I don't think, about systematic uh, upcoding by a, a billing company for all of its clients. And that was what the issue was. And even still, Greg, you know that billing companies will come to you and say, let, let us look at your charts and see what we can find for you. And they always say, well, we can do better than that other company. Right. We can improve <laughs> your profile. <laughs> and and the, the problem is this. The feds had to invent a system where obviously you do better if you say you did more stuff. And I, I don't know why we use this. It's, it's fraught with problems, but you're right. It is part of the grand scheme and, and a difficult problem. Um, well, let's get to the question of is upcoding an issue in 2020? Uh, you know, I had my grandson, elbow injury, had a non-displaced, basically superchondral fracture, got an x-ray, posterior molded splint and sling, got a level five charge. And, you know, I thought level fives were, well, you got to do EKG and blood tests and serial assessments and uh, Op all of this the stuff. Chest. Opening the chest is a level <laughs> five, I think. Well, I think that I think that everybody uh, must be charging a level five. And there is some data to support what I would call bracket creep. Um, as an example, I found an article that said that in the year 2002, 28% of Medicaid who went to the emergency department got a level five, uh, which is, you know, 28% go home level five. What is it now? Well, the data that I have is from 2012. Greg, it is 58%. 58% of the people who go home and who are Medicare patients are now level fives. Now, what the heck has transpired since between 2002 and 2012? Yeah. Can, you, can Rick, you explain that? Yeah, it doesn't take a genius here, and you made a system 
where if you say you put more, did more things, they give you more credit. And uh, this whole system is uh, is uh, not functioning as well as it should. Well, no you, question about it. Let me uh, refer you to uh, an article that came out recently, very, I think it was 2020. Right. Where they had 20 residents from, was it 12, no, 15, 12, I think it was 12, 12 residents. Yes, 12 residents. And these were UCLA slash Olive residents, but they never really specifically said where the residents were from. But when you look at the authors, they were all from UCLA and Olive. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, what they did is they looked at the charting that was done by these uh, 12 residents on 20 patients. And these are 20, like, uh, I think they're more or less consecutive patients. And the residents were observed. Oftentimes they were observed by faculty. Uh, other times they were observed by trained observers. They also audio recorded the um, conversation between the residents and the patients. And the residents were told that this was part of a time and motion study in the emergency department and that they were participating in when in fact it was really a, a study of their charting. And <laughs> when they were told it was a study of their charting, three of the residents said, I'm not, I'm not participating, I'm out of here. So that left, I think, uh, nine residents of the, of the 12. And they looked at their 180 charts and virtually all of them charted level five. The, it didn't matter, it was, 180 patients seen by residents, and they and they all were uh, level five, essentially. There might have been a few exceptions. So these residents now are taught that you do a level five chart, at least regarding review of systems and the physical exam. And they all were clicking the all of the systems reviewed in negative box. So that basically, with regard to physical and review of systems, they had written the level five chart. Now, whether their coders basically went on and say that was a level five visit is another matter. But um, it basically shows that these residents, even at a young age, have learned how to try to beat the system. There's an inherent criticism, though, Rick, of these uh, studies, because whenever you have a training program, because this is happening at Oliveview, or, or at uh, USC or something like, like that. UCLA. that. Yeah, UCLA. That does not mean that's what's happening at the average, you know, 90%, 85% of hospitals in California are not university program hospitals. I mean, to say that this is going on at every other hospital in California, you can't do that. Oh, and, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, yeah. these these residents are trained now and they're writing level fives on everybody and they go out into the community and they write level fives on everybody. Do we know that for sure, Rick? No. Be yeah. No. And, and, no. and I, I think that uh, sometimes we jump on this as if it's a given and, and I'm not sure it is. But you're right. It's something we have to think about. And I, I have just felt for years that the current system is uh, is uh, strange and uh, useless, and it encourages people to not be as metic is meticulous the right word, <laughs> not as meticulous as they should be on the uh, details. Well, you know, uh, there is a move afoot in primary care 
to remove the uh, five levels of service and have basically uh, a level five is the official service and anything less than that, you discharge what you think is medically appropriate so that all of this, um, all that, all of these details that were largely unnecessary on these less sick cases don't have to have all of these review systems and all the uh, other business. Let's talk about people getting fired for refusing their flu shots and lawsuits being generated uh, thereby. Yeah, this is this is the only country, I think, Rick, where there's this kind of problem with it. If you're in England uh, and you're working in with patients in emergency uh, and walk in settings, you get your shot. It's just expected that that's going to happen. I don't remember any challenges in England to uh, the shots being given. So why is it a big deal here? This is a land that a free man. Right, I guess. So but the idea here is, is that hospitals are looking for 100% compliance. And uh, when people say, no, I don't want the shot, they have a couple of options. One of them is to accommodate them in some way. And I remember that at our hospital, they would allow people to wear masks. It was like the scarlet letter. You were wearing a mask. You were one of the people who refused the shot. Mm -hmm. However, other hospitals are saying that's not good enough. And so if you don't want to play ball, uh, you're out of here. And with regard to exemptions, you know, some, some places will allow religious exemptions. Some places will not allow them. In California, basically, with the measles epidemic that they had, they shut this stuff down big time. Uh, the religious exemptions don't exist anymore. A physician in Orange County who was giving out ex uh, medical exemptions was brought before the California board for being a bad boy over this stuff. So uh, people don't have much of a sense of humor regarding this. The first uh, case is, uh, that I saw was uh, a woman who asserted that she refused a flu shot because of her belief that her uh, African holistic health lifestyle did not justify, uh, uh, that was their claim that this is why I, I'm not gonna do it. She had received flu shots a whole bunch of years before, but all of a sudden she got uh, religion, uh, at least with regard to her African holistic lifestyle. And uh, the bottom line is the judge says, uh, you, you, it's not going to work. We're not going to withhold a whole, you know, we're not going to uphold this as a reason for you to be exempt. Uh, and thanks very much. So, and there's been a lot of these cases, uh, and it's likely that you're not going to win. Uh, there's lots and lots of people being fired because they don't want to get their um, flu shot. I saw one. Uh, series that totaled over 50 patients in one, in one hospital system um, over this. The, uh, <clears throat> by the way, while we're talking about uh, spreading things around, uh, this is our first recording since the, um, since the coronavirus has uh, taken over China. And it's important for everybody to recognize that the Centers for Disease Control uh, within the last oh, this week we're recording, has re-emphasized all of its uh, rules. And you should be asking febrile patients 
And it, it was interesting. I went into the hospital for a procedure. And the first question was, have you been outside of the United States? Have you been with someone who has been in Asia? Have you done these things? I'd pay attention to this and because uh, it's not going to go f- well for you if you have not asked those questions. The onus falls upon the provider of service to ask those sorts of questions. And if you've got a fever and uh, coming into the hospital and they haven't asked those, those questions, I think that uh, you may be culpable in some ways. Well, you know, the first Ebola patients who came into the United States were not asked those questions when, even when it was known that there was uh, some Ebola issues in Africa and um, that person slipped through uh, going through the emergency department. Yep. Let's talk about battery. Uh, family of a terminal cancer patient at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, they, they got, the family sued them for a battery and intentional infliction of emotional distress after alleging an x-ray technologist continued a procedure after patient asked them to stop. How many times in emergency medicine do people ask for a procedure to stop? And uh, like they're getting a Foley catheter in, they're getting an NG tube in, which is cruel and unusual punishment in the majority of cases. A Massachusetts appeal court took the position that a patient can sue for battery, quote, if a patient unambiguously withdraws consent after medical treatment has begun, and if it is medically feasible to discontinue treatment, that following such a withdrawal may give rise to a medical battery claim. So says Becker's Hospital Review, February 14, 2020. But the the details here are important. Because if you're in the middle of a procedure and you're three quarters of the way down with that catheter, if you've if you've punctured the skin and you're putting the line in, what does that mean? I mean, we've all said, hold on just a second and gone ahead and gotten it in. It it's not simple. It's not black and white. Now, if someone says right to you, I'm not getting that, I'm not having that done, then I think you're obligated to stop rediscuss the situation, make sure everybody feels comfortable. But uh, let, let's be a little careful because we've all, at least I've been in that situation uh, dozens of times where you're involved in doing a procedure which is becoming a small amount of uncomfort, uh, uncomfortable situation. But Rick, are we supposed to stop every time in a second, in two seconds, I believe the patient has the right to refuse, but uh, let's use some common sense and judgment here because there'd been a heck of a lot of procedures stopped if this hadn't been the case. Well, this was a Massachusetts appeals court ruling and, and this is not like the law of the land, but this is one court addressing this question and that went in behalf of the patients. So, and the other thing to point out is, is this procedure reasonably terminated kind of thing? Right, right. Yeah, reasonably terminated. And that may mean uh, it, it takes you a second or two to stop what's going on and to discuss it with the patient. But I'll give you this. 
you do want to make the family and 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 the patient feel as comfortable as you possibly can. Um, I, I think the next part of that is, do they even need what they're actually getting? And there are plenty of patients who are having things done to them, particularly terminal patients, uh, where the actual procedure was not mandatory at that moment in time. Hey, we got a new one here. I've not seen this before. This is a terrific uh, case. This is about patient satisfaction scores. Uh, an emergency physician who worked with Kaiser, Evelyn, uh, Aaron Alpert, Aaron, Aaron Alpert, she worked with Kaiser from uh, 2012 to 2017. She sued them over the fact that their patient satisfaction scoring system methodology was a problem. She alleged that it incentivized overprescribing of opioids and hurt her career as a result because she basically pushed back on the opioids. And uh, as a result, people were complaining about her care. I think that she worked up in the Oakland area and that people were coming in who she kind of thought were requesting uh, opiates a little bit more frequently than they should. And uh, basically this got her into some problem. The doctor alleged her dismissal stemmed from her failure to accept patient satisfaction scoring tools. She indicated that the tools incentivized the prescribing of opioids when medically unnecessary. She felt that poor patient reviews could be the result of drug-seeking patients not being prescribed from them and then writing a bad review on you because you didn't give them the drugs they wanted. She alleged she failed to have to make a shareholder status three years in a row. And here's a uh, quote, Kaiser's management denied Dr. Alpert shareholder status, at least in part on the basis of financial concerns that advancing Dr. Alpert would result in reduced revenues and other physicians would follow her example and refuse to prescribe uh, or provide medication that were not. Um, now let me read that again. I think I made a mistake here. Bottom line is she's suing them for her patient satisfaction scores, which were apparently not as good as her peers, and she said that it's related to incentivization for opioid prescribing. I've never yeah. seen a case like this. It's kind of an in, uh, in, interesting premise. Well, it's an interesting concept. However, I think that whenever you take a complaint like that, it's it's much broader. For example, everybody else is is evaluated with the tool. Where do they lie with the rest of the people who are getting the tool? Are there other things that, that the people complained about? Uh, you can always pick out. It's interesting we pick out that's the reason, that's the problem. And I think it's almost always complex. It's, it's more factors than just did you or did you not give out pain medicines? And so uh, understand the organization particularly in this day and age, has a duty to be looking at and monitoring the amount of opioids which are given out. Fair, fair statement? Yeah, I think that it's interesting that this has been the, this is the basis for her suit. And I think that um, this is the first time I've seen that. Now, whether, I'm sure there's a million details in here, and as you've uh, acknowledged, and we don't know any of those, but just the idea that a physician is suing over 
patient satisfaction scores that they were getting that she believes were related to her not prescribing opiates to the uh, level of her colleagues. Uh, I think it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting idea. No, no, there's no question. It's just when we when we take anything this on face value, we got to go back and look at a, at a much uh, bigger issue. Kaiser is a big organization. It's evaluated a lot of physicians, and I'm sure they have something. There's other things there that are a part of this, although it certainly is a uh, an interesting place to just start the discussion when we're looking at this. And this has real implications. Because if you don't make partner status, and let's say it has significant financial implications over a year or two, this could be important no, in, absolutely. Uh, in, the, in the operation. Here's a really interesting situation. The, uh, the EEOC is suing Yale New Haven Hospital over their credentialing policy that requires physicians or dentists or PAs or NPs over the age of 70 have to have a cognitive profile done on them. Uh, also, they have to have a uh, eye test as well. And it's kind of, think it, it was like well-intended kind of thing to do, but as you can envision, are you interested, Greg, in having a cognitive assessment by uh, the uh, hospital where you're working? <laughs> Absolutely not if I don't have to. And I, I, I bet there's a whole bunch of older physicians who that kind of question is occasionally raised. And uh, I understand if colleagues have seen that maybe there's a little problem, but most of us don't want certain things threatened. Uh, by the way, with the state of Michigan, the one thing most people don't want threatened is their driver's license. And uh, we have this fight all the time. Who's going to have to show up and bring proof of other, how their health is? So this isn't just at the medical level. There's a lot of places where this takes place. Here's what the EEOC had to say. While Yale New Haven Hospital may claim its policy is well-intentioned, which I think it was. Sure it is. It violates anti-discrimination laws, said Jeffrey Bernstein, a regional attorney for the EEOC's New York District Office. There are many other non-discriminatory methods already in place to ensure the competence of all of its physicians and other health care providers, regardless of age. I think that that is absolute total bullshit. Right. The, idea, the idea here is that peer review is going to uh, sort you out. And now I have a pretty cynical view of peer review. What do you think, Greg? What's your what's your view of this in your in your career? Are they really uh, is this one of those situations which is largely a sham operation? Yeah, of course. And, and I think that uh, most physicians understand that and most physicians are afraid that the system will treat them badly in some way, shape, or form. The most important thing is the lawyer has commented here, well, we have other ways of doing it. He didn't tell us what those were. The other thing is if everybody has to go through it at age 70, then it's not discriminatory. It's interesting. This question came up with the uh, Airline Pilots Association, uh, and uh, they said, no, 
they have to be checked cardiac wise. Nobody in America gets more cardiac examinations than airline pilots. Although and they don't get a, a choice. They're specifically excluded, actually, from the EOC with regard to this uh, item. So they have mandatory retirement at age um, 65. Right. And it's a, spe- a specific uh, exception that is in the regulations. In addition, Rick, Rick, I want to ask you a question. Why would they get a specific exception? I'll tell you why. They're flying your plane. That's why they get a specific exception. No, I got Uh, it. Yeah. (laughs) But the fact is at 65, I think most people are capable and those planes fly themselves anyway. Right. Exactly. You know who else got uh, dispensations from this is... um, Anybody who works for the federal government that carries a gun, a park ranger, you have to retire at age 57, uh, a federal policeman, 57. There may be some ability to extend it to, uh, to 61 in certain cases. But catch this. You have to retire at 57 if you've had 20 years in the service, that service so that you can get your full retirement. If you don't have 20 years in, they'll allow you to stay in longer until you get it. So it's like, it's <laughs> air, air traffic controllers, it's the same thing. They have a, uh, also, again, I think it's 57 for air traffic controllers. So th- there are exceptions, but doctors are not going to be one. I can tell you that. So that's what the EEOC said. There, you have other ways to assess it. And the only way I know of is peer review. Peer review is a retrospective look at what you've done. It's a look at your charts or this, that, and the other thing. Or maybe somebody brings up a case that they thought you might have screwed up. So it's all retrospective. The idea here is to prospectively identify the doctors who are going to be causing problems. And uh, so conceptually, at least, it makes some sense. Uh, Here's what Yale New Haven said. Yale New Haven's hospital's late career practitioner policy, late late career practitioner policy, is designed to protect our patients from potential harm while including safeguards to ensure that our physicians are treated fairly. So as said a Yale New Haven spokesman, the policy is modeled on similar standards in other industries, and we're confident that no discrimination has occurred and will vigorously defend ourselves in this matter. Well, I think that, I think Yale New Haven's going to lose, and uh, now we don't know the outcome here. This Eventually is all very recent. down the the road they will, but how long it'll take to that happens? Oh, I don't think it's going to take know. very long at all. You know, I, I know of other hospitals out here in Southern California that have uh, had a mandatory age. Now, the ages vary in these hospitals. Some are seventy, some are seventy-five, but it's not unique that these hospitals are doing it. As a matter of fact, it was started at Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake, where they have a bunch of hospitals. It was done at uh, University of Pennsylvania, Penn Medicine, which also has a bunch of hospitals. Uh, Stanford Hospital, they did it there. And do you think the medical staff is in favor of this stuff? They push back big time. Big time. In in Stanford, the medical staff said, no, we're going to stick the peer review. In the state of Utah for Salt Lake uh, and the Internet Mountain Health Group, the uh, medical staff pushed back to the point where Utah made a law specifically saying that 
discriminating uh, at, at, at doing this at 70 was 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 against the law, uh, despite the fact that federal law supersedes it, and federal law says uh, you can't do this. Uh, there was other situations where medical staffs have gotten stuff uh, unturned here. So I don't know that this is going to uh, change everybody's practice uh, immediately. But I think when you look at this, the studies about this stuff, uh, interestingly enough, this article on the EEOC suing uh, Yale came out in February. In January, in JAMA, Yale New Haven published a study of 141 people over the age of 70 in their um, getting their cognitive neuropsychiatric assessments uh, and their eye exams. And they had 141 people. And uh, out of that, 19 basically kind of flunked. Uh, <laughs> and, and, it, and when you flunk, you go before a committee. It's, it's not just your numbers are bad. It's kind of like they make a kind of comprehensive assessment and basically they said, you're out. Well, in, of the 19, uh, 12 were allowed to have uh, either proctored practice or most of them resigned. But that left seven people. So the seven people went into a more comprehensive neuropsychiatric assessment. The, these things can take days to get these things done. And when they did that comprehensive neuroassessment of the seven who flunked, four of them were allowed to recredential. So what does that say about the false positivity of these neuropsychiatric tests when seven people took the deep test, the two-day test, and four of them basically were allowed to recredential. Yeah, when so, you look at the total numbers there, Rick, what that means is the test is pretty effective at picking up people who have a problem. It's not like they picked up one in 10,000 or one in 15,000. Uh, no, it, it was- This is a pretty, pretty sensitive test. It was yes, but there were too many false positives. There are thirteen percent of the medical staff who were seventy and took this got a flunking grade. Thirteen percent, and so this is this study had one reference. I mean, this stuff is the first stuff out there about looking at what this uh, is um, doing. But the fact of the matter, Greg, is there's so many ways that a neuropsychiatric battery can be uh, challenged. First of all, this study talks about the fact that there's a lot of false positives. The other thing is, what about, is it equal that the uh, cognitive ability of an ophthalmologist be the same as that of a uh, internist or a pediatrician or emergency physicians? Are, are not those skill sets all, all different? Isn't ophthalmology pretty kind of straightforward? Um, and yes, they're going to do the hand-eye coordination and see whether you have a tremor and all that other kind of stuff. But in terms of mental capacity, we don't know what the cutoff is. So I think there are ways, there are a lot of ways to challenge this and a lot more ways to challenge it than to support it. But that's just my opinion. Yeah. So what are, you, what are we going to do in emergency medicine, Rick? We have people now who step back, they change the number of shifts they work, they work urgent care or they work some other uh, fast track, that sort of thing. I mean, is this going to be a mandatory part of practice as we move forward? Well, if, if the hospital chooses to take this on, it'll be for all the physicians, not just the emergency physicians. That would, that would be really discriminatory. 
Right. So it's going to be uh, everybody. And my position is that um, the level of cognitive ability to perform a pediatrician's task are different than from an ophthalmologist's tasks for or versus an emergency physician's task. And an office-based doctor it may be different as well. So I, I, I think that... It, I think pushing back on this and 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 suing uh, to prevent this is more likely to win than than not, despite the fact that more hospitals are doing it. Yeah. What do you uh, what do you, what do you want done for yourself and for uh, your family goes in to be seeing a physician, Rick? What do you want uh, that person to be, to have to have done to be allowed to still see patients? Well, I don't honestly know because I don't really believe peer review is a protective, a particularly effective way to um, screen out physicians who are uh, kind of losing it. And we've also talked about physicians who you think are not as sharp as they were in the past. They're getting older. They're they're getting slower. They're starting to make a few mistakes here and there. And what should you do as a member of a group when your physician is is um, getting in, into an uh, area where you think he's not as c- competent or careful as he or she might be. Um, yeah, those, are, it, those, are, those are tough cases. But those, you, you, those are very tough questions because you're talking about taking away income. You may be talking about uh, uh, limiting their ability to move on, retake their board exams. Kind of lots of things can be involved here. This isn't this isn't simple. The other thing is, uh, we have the same problem in those physicians who occasionally imbibe, uh, occasionally have other uh, emotional and uh, psychiatric problems. Um, but we don't we don't have a, a uniform way to handle these things. But this is a, there is a difference here. Those physicians who you think are having trouble um, and maybe age related. They're supposed to be reported and evaluated, and they can get in a comprehensive neuropsychiatric uh, battery. This is not screening. In your case, we're talking about a physician who is demonstrating uh, behavior that you think is potentially dangerous to patients. So that doctor gets right. reported. He gets evaluated. That's not the same as all doctors, uh, when they hit the age of 70, have to have neuropsychiatric testing. Right. That's, that's the issue whether there was any justification to do it or not. So think of that yeah. when they, your hospital starts talking about this. You know, it's, I, I, all, I wonder who is the person who kind of is the one who basically initiates this? Is this the medical staff initiating this? Or is this the hospital? Because a lot of these states allow physicians to be employed and employed physicians now become the problem of the hospital. Right. In California, exactly. you, you can't employ physicians to provide care. So it it's always, you know, contracted physicians. But I think it's a kin- interesting idea. I think there's more of it going to be coming along. And this is the EO, EEOC stepping up and saying, not so fast. Okay. Um, well, I, I, first of all, this is not going to go away. It's going to get worse, going to get more difficult. And so we are going to have to, as a profession, at the level of uh, ASAP or 
AMA, that sort of thing. We're going to have to talk about what we want as physicians. Uh, the traditional story is, uh, oh, the legal system will take care of this. I think the legal system has actually been a very poor way of picking up problem patients. It isn't just no, patients problem, who have problem hmm, doctors. Problem doctors. Uh, we know for sure that it's it's not a uniform way of dealing with things. So we can't just say those physicians who have been sued have gotten into some medical legal problem. Uh, that can be obvious. There are people who can go for years, and you and I know those physicians who have gone for years, have never had a legal problem, and yet uh, that doesn't mean that they're competent uh, to continue to practice. Well, that's a good point. Uh, of the 19 physicians who kind of flunked, none of those physicians had ever been brought up for any peer-review-related kind of uh, issues regarding their practice. Yep. But I, I, I'm sure, and particularly with any group where there is an ownership uh, interest and where they can be removed from ownership interest, this is a financial, medical, legal issue. And uh, people are want to know how to resolve this kind of question. Okay, let's move right. on to, to a bit of an unusual case. Yeah, this is interesting. Here's a, 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 an unexpected outcome. A Minneapolis Court of Appeals, uh, obviously for the state of Minnesota, ruled the taking of a picture of a demented patient in a nursing home by an aide, an inclusion of a demented caption, something written on there, did not disclose any identifying information about the patient or care setting in which it was given uh, and uh, was not an unauthorized release of a health record. I don't know exactly what this means, Rick, because we've had previous cases on this program where the release of x-rays, that sort of thing, was considered an inappropriate release of healthcare information. I'm not sure how that aid, uh, the aid who released this was fired, and all people were uh, retrained regarding patient privacy, but why that was not considered to be an unauthorized release of medical information, I don't know. Well, basically, this is a picture of a patient, right. uh, a demented patient with a caption underneath that, that was a demeaning caption. And uh, but the court in this case determined that that was an was not an unauthorized release of health records. The patient's name was not on identified. There was no medical uh, conversation or comment in this. Uh, and so in this case, the court says no unauthorized release of health records occurred. You took a picture of the patient. Yeah. You put a demeaning uh, phrase underneath the patient's picture. Yep. But you did not release the patient's name. You did not release any um, health related records about that patient. And so in this case, the court said uh, it's, 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 it wasn't a HIPAA violation. However, 
we're going to fire you. Your employer is going to fire you because they didn't like what you did. And you could certainly understand the family being upset about that when they saw it on social media. But this turned out not to be, at least in the view of this court, a HIPAA violation. What about a patient who, uh, oh, all right, next well, case. Lisa, let me throw one thing into there. This is an aberrancy. Yes. I would, I would not think that encouraging this would be a good thing. Because they get away with something doesn't mean it's going to happen again. And I would, I would come down more on the side of those who would say, you know what? If you don't have to release something or let it out there, don't let it out there. You can't get in any trouble by well, not. Listen, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What if you take a picture of a very obese patient uh, walking down the street and you put a mean caption underneath that? Are you, uh, is that a HIPAA violation? You haven't put the person's name. You basically have put this mean caption. You don't have the person's permission for the, to take your picture, but it's certainly not HIPAA. No, it's probably not HIPAA, but just let me say, if this gets into the legal process in some other way, Rick, it doesn't make you look like physician of the year at that moment in time. It doesn't make you like the well, yeah, it's doctor. Not a, it's not a nice thing to do, but it, is it uh, HIPAA? No. Right. Um, so here's an interesting case of a um, physician who allegedly had alcohol on her breath who won $4.75 million. So maybe you could follow along, Greg, and you go in and put some alcohol in your breath, and hopefully you could come back with $4.75 million. Yeah. In any case, a nurse practitioner claimed that the physician had alcohol on her breath when she came in for night shift. This was an OBGYN doc. The uh, physician was not advised at the time, and hospital policy was not followed, so, because hospital policy says you have to you approach the patient at the time that you smell it and say, I smell alcohol. You then have to have uh, the employer has to immediately assess her, mm -hmm. relieve the doctor of duty immediately. <laughs> If, the, if they believe the, pay, uh, the doctor is um, compromised and request that the physician immediately submit to a blood alcohol test at an external facility. That's interesting. Not your lab. You have to go to some other lab. How are you going to get there? You're already drunk. <laughs> yeah, let them drive. Right, right. That's right. And it, uh, the case had a bunch of twists and turns, but the bottom line here is you better follow your policy if you're going to start uh, – uh, meddling into the rights of other uh, physicians when, uh, in an improper fashion. Every hospital is going to have a policy about this, and it needs to be followed. In this case, it wasn't, and the physician came away with $4.75 million because she felt that there was damage to her reputation, loss of income, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, through this right. process. Yeah, I, I think that this uh, this month's issue has a lot of questions about rights. Uh, and the best way you cover yourself as the group, the organization, is to follow what's been agreed in policy. And for you to be inventing policy on the fly is the single biggest mistake. You just do it down the road, independent, 
somebody from administration who, who pulls the book out, says, this is the way we do it, how we're going to get it done, and then everybody can shake hands and go home. But what you can't do is decide to invent policy on the fly that hasn't been agreed upon because every physician on staff who's got privileges has signed the physician privilege manual. They've agreed to these things. I've never worked in a hospital that didn't have some sort of policy about if behavior is considered abnormal, what's going to be done. So uh, this basically is a good lesson to us all to, uh, to head back to the book and do it right. Uh, let me talk for just a second here about uh, uh, prescribing refills. Uh, it's always a problem. The refill trap. That's the title of an article by uh, Ken Toltz and uh, Ken, uh, DOJD, lots of stuff, uh, is, is a pretty, pretty hep medical legal guy who in the Texas ASEP newsletter has written some key points. Uh, and we should think about this. Uh, this was a patient. This is a pace of a chronic uh, metacropamide prescribing resulted in tardive dyskinesia dystonia. The family physician claimed he was unaware of the black box warning indicating risk of the side effect. Uh, rule number one, if there's a black box warning with the drug you're giving out, you ought to know about it. Uh, this is one of those things that's been known uh, with this drug for, what, 30 years, that sort of thing, and you ought to know what's going on. Uh, this had a suit. Uh, the, the pharmacy also um, was uh, sued in this case, but did not go down uh, for this one. This was the physician, the bottom line, the physician insurer paid policy limits, but the suit against the actual pharmacy that supplied the, the drug was not successful. So I guess the consideration here is the physician had the duty to warn that patient about the possibility of the side effects and the black box warning, <clears throat> but that the pharmacist did not at that moment in time. Yeah, this wasn't an emergency department case, but the point was you be, better know what you're doing when you're prescribing a drug. And even if it, it's a refill, you're, you're less likely to know about it because refills are generally about drugs that are given out by internists or family physicians on a chronic basis, which you may not know particularly because they're not emergency medicine uh, drugs. So that was Ken's warning there. Uh, be very careful. Uh, it also reminded me of... Uh, case that we had that was was emergency medicine related where a uh, psychiatric patient came in asking for refills and of this antipsychotic medication and the physician uh, was alarmed at the amount of the uh, antipsychotic medication the patient was taking on a chronic basis and didn't feel comfortable prescribing that amount and therefore described prescribed amount that which more usual and customary. Uh, the physician did not 
call the patient psychiatrist and uh, and did not call the on-call psychiatrist in, uh, to get some advice in this case. In any case, the patient went home on a markedly lower dose than the patient is used to, developed an acute psychotic episode, was brought to the hospital and ultimately committed suicide. And that gets into the situation of, well, you know, psychiatric medications are all over the dartboard in terms of what's going to stabilize a patient. And sometimes you're at the upper limits and uh, you're not familiar with it as a emergency physicians, but, you know, psychiatrists have titrated it in this case to some efficacy and you screwed it up. Right. Well, if you look at the ads every night on television uh, and if it's almost anything that's we're going to see frequently, it's going to be a psychiatric medication or an UMAB group of uh, one of the UMAB group of drugs. But they point out on almost all the psychiatric ads that one of the side effects of changing the dose of the drug is suicide. Now, that's either up or down. So I think this is a much finer uh, balancing act than what we know. Emergency docs don't manage psychiatric drugs over long periods of time. And I think that getting a help, getting a little help, uh, a little advice at that moment in time is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, I, I think there are probably 30 or 40 medications which emergency medicines uh, people are good at giving out. Why? Because we do it all the time. Antibiotics, certain pain medicines, uh, certain sedation. But there's all kinds of other meds. I will be the first one to admit um, I don't feel comfortable with those drugs, Rick. And I would be willing to call on the phone and get a little help. Yeah, I think that we also know that getting a hold of psychiatrists is quite a trick. And many of us don't have a psychiatrist on call. So although uh, those two things were cited by uh, in this case, as you didn't do these or attempt to do these things, um, whether it was actually feasible to do them or not is another matter. So this doctor could have been really in a box. You know, the patient's getting this very high dose. It's uh, out, uh, outside the usual dosage range. What's the, what's the doctor gonna do? He's gonna take the safer position and do the more customary dose. But in fact, that's not necessarily the safer position. And this patient committed suicide in his uh, acute psychotic state. Yeah. Uh, in, in all fairness, we give the medications to those people who are most likely to commit suicide. Those are people who have psychiatric problems. And it, it, your, your miss rate here is there will be some miss rate. Someone is going to commit suicide, but reasonably withdrawing the medication is still the prudent way to go. Okay, let's talk about another potential HIPAA case. So a patient is uh, drinking heavily, cuts her arm, drives herself to the local ER. A nurse smells alcohol on her breath and does an alco sensor that reads at 0 0.2, 0 0.2. So this lady is loaded. Loaded. Uh, after the wound is treated, the nurse advises a police officer in the department the patient is arrested for driving while intoxicated. 
So the question is, did the nurse violate HIPAA in telling the policeman about uh, what had just transpired? And in this case, the answer is no. This nurse told the policeman about this patient being intoxicated because the patient drove in intoxicated and how was she going to go home? Was she going to drive the car home intoxicated? No, it was reasonable for that nurse to tell the policeman, this lady ought not be allowed to drive. That, and it turns out that HIPAA has some caveats here and there. So let me read it to you. HIPAA permits a covered entity, otherwise known as you and the hospital, to disclose to disclose protected health information as long as two conditions are met. The covered entity, you, has a good faith belief that the disclosure is necessary to prevent or lessen a serious and imminent threat to the health and safety of a person or the public. And the disclosure is to a person or persons reasonably able to prevent or lessen the threat, including the target of the threat. So the, who is the person who is going to fix this thing? The policeman. And did the, uh, the uh, nurse give this information in good faith? Absolutely. This is not a HIPAA violation. And this stuff kind of comes up in the emergency department with some frequency. You know, telling on somebody who's loaded, who drove in by themselves. Or, or you see it when they bring a kid in and you smell alcohol in the parent. But the kid, you know, is, is, is the patient. And, you know, you can't let that parent drive him home. So who are you going to tell? You know, you're, you're going to find a way to prevent that from uh, occurring because once it's noted that the patient is smelling by alcohol, whether it's be a nurse's note or a physician's note, you you are obligated to finish uh, out the yeah. process. Yeah, you're 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 part of the process here. Uh, the other thing is most of the police uh, handle this pretty well. They will pull them aside, take their keys, bring a family member in, do something else. I understand when the police don't necessarily want to arrest them, but they have other the things they can do other than take them to the to the jailhouse. They can take away their car, do something else, come back and see them in, in four hours, whatever they want to do. But once you know that there's a problem, you can't pretend you don't know the problem exists. And... If you let that person go out, we've talked about this dozens of times on this program. You have a duty to third parties, to known third parties, and you have a duty to unknown but expected third party. If there's somebody out there driving a car, you let them go. This You've sent out a, a potential killing machine to get them. I mean, this really is uh, for real, and and I don't think an emergency physician should be concerned that they may get into trouble because they've let the police know they've done the correct thing. In this case, the the lady was arrested for drunk driving. Retrospectively, you know, she yeah. drove in drunk, and said, and so the cop said, "We're you're arriving, we're arresting you for what you did." Uh, which and so that's how this case got into the uh, legal literature because uh, the I issue of a, a HIPAA disclosure came into this case and it turns out that what the cop did was wrong. You know, you can't arrest somebody retrospectively. For, you didn't witness the crime or anything like that. So 
that's why this uh, got into the uh, the news here. But I think that it's important to allow, you know, physicians and nurses to feel comfortable about protecting patients. And in the process of protecting patients, you may release some, um, you know, protected health information. So that's the way it's going to go. Rick, we get a message here that uh, we've been pronouncing Covris uh, bad. We've been doing a poor job. Somebody sent us an email that says uh, uh, Peter Blum writes and tells us that the correct pronunciation is what now? Covaris? Covaris. 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 Okay. <laughs> we've, been, we've been, well, how the heck are you supposed to know? You know, I've been calling it Covaris for months. This is about this detailed survey that they did of uh, emergency departments, which they ensured both the doctors who work in those departments and the hospital who has those departments. And we need to get back to that because there still is a bunch of recommendations that they had that we haven't covered yet. But from now on, we will use the proper terminology, thanks to Peter Bloom, Covaris. All right, next. Again, this is the rights issue. Do you have the right to drive drunk and not be told to, to the cops? Do you have the right to do other things? Here's the federal court, uh, federal court dealing with physician freedom of speech issues. This is U.S. District of Court for the Western District of Washington issued an opinion on a dispute between a public hospital district and a physician. The physician filed suit against the hospital following the removal of his clinical privileges, alleging, among other things, inappropriate denial of due process and infringement of First Amendment freedom uh, rights. And, of course, First Amendment in this case, freedom of speech. Um, regarding the uh, physician, the First Amendment claim, the court emphasized that the, he was a government employee and the hospital had some responsibility to be aware of and take charge of his speech. He doesn't have the freedom to say anything he wants because he works for the government. Consequently, when the doctor spoke to his patients as an employed physician of the hospital, he was acting as an employee and his speech was not protected by the First Amendment. This had nothing to do with political freedom, this, that, or another thing. He was just being a jerk. What was and he saying? What was, what, did it get into any of those details? They didn't have the details, but the, the name of the case is- uh, well, uh, no, 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 that, that's too complicated. I'll skip, skip the name. Hey, listen. So the idea here is that an employee, an employee doctor is uh, not allowed to uh, say uh, wacky things because they are actually the agent of the uh, person who employed them. That exactly. Exactly. What they're saying here is if you if you want to go to Hyde, uh, uh, Hyde Park Corner in London and talk about issues, you have freedom of speech, I guess. But if you. Uh, if you're at your workplace and you work for the the uh, company, for the the hospital, uh, you can't just do anything you want. Uh, that you, you do have to take responsibility for what you've said. 
And so, and so basically the, the uh, district court uh, said that, no, I'm sorry, doctor, you have to take some responsibility for your speech. Okay, some good news. A trial court did not abuse its discretion in finding an expert unqualified to testify to the standard of care in a particular locality when the expert failed to demonstrate a reliable basis for his opinion. What happened in this case, which is Hera, H-E-R-R-E-R-A versus Seller, uh, uh, this is a Michigan case. The expert actually had come over from the state of of, um, uh, Indiana. And in this case, the person who's speaking as an expert said he was familiar with the standard of care. But what happened was they forced him to talk about how would he know what the standard would be in a different case, in a different state. For example, if you had taught in the state of Michigan, if you gave lectures there, if you were also a part of their medical society, which happens when you're on the border of states all the time. But they actually challenged this guy's ability to speak to the question of, do you know or should know what the standard of care is in a different state, in a different uh, region? And the, the, uh, the, uh, dis- the court, the appellate court, basically said, no, they did not demonstrate that this person should know what that standard of care should be. So if you have an expert against you who's challenging uh, what you have to say and claims they know the standard of care, make sure your attorney does establish that they do know the standard of care. They have a right to speak as to how medicine should be practiced in your region. This was actually a very important case here in the state of Michigan because it stops people from saying, well, I know. I'm near the border. I'm close. No, they didn't. They did not have active practice in that state, and they they had no reason to be considered an expert in that state. Boy, that is really wacky. Really yeah. wacky. I, I mean, you know that sta- uh, trials have experts from all over the country. There's supposed to be a national standard, not a uh, a state standard, or, or how about a county standard, or what, what's the standard in your city? Uh, what they say is the region, and with, well, with Illinois the, and Illinois and Michigan are like like aren't they next door or something like that? You're all yes. in the flyover states. We know that. <laughs> yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Rick. We appreciate that. But uh, this this is an interesting judgment because what it basically said was, hey. What makes you an expert? You know, if uh, uh, if I go to testify in a state and I've given lectures in that state, I've been recognized oh, by their get out of here. They, they, is, they they that, will accept that. They accept that, Rick. That is an aberrant uh, um, interpretation, I believe. 
that ex experts can come from any place in the country if they claim to, that there is a national standard, that there's not a regional standard. We handle appendicitis different over in Illinois than in, in Michigan. No, oh, I don't think okay. so. Right. Okay. Just just letting you I know. I don't like that. I don't it, like that. It was a it was a positive decision for us. Well, the, the, the positive for who? The uh, the uh, the the family that was using this doctor as an expert was thrown out because he uh, didn't practice in the state where he was claiming to be an expert. That yes. didn't make any sense. I'm just I'm just telling you. You're just the messenger. I know. I know. Just, just the, the messenger, messenger here. Okay, Rick. I um. Uh, I, I've got uh, bad news, and that is uh, my wine club of the last 30-some years has closed up, has gone defunct. We've been importing wine, uh, those of us here in town, for a fairly good number of people over the years. But we've all be gotten old, and we don't order as much anymore. We don't get the financial advantage so uh, as of a couple of months ago, my wine club went defunct. So I've started to get uh, some wine for wine of the month from various other places. Uh, I'll tell you, we had a great financial setup in getting our wine and tasting it. Hopefully by next month, I'll have a new wine, uh, wine of the month from my new wine club. Are you going to be the president no. Are you no, going to be one of the instigators of this no, thing? I, I'm an instigator, not an officer, and we're going to do our best to get reasonably priced wines. Uh, I, I can't, I can't believe what some people are willing to pay and spend, but not us. All right, Gregory, uh, that's a wrap. That's the March 2020 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Listen, we like your comments. Please. Well, don't send a letter saying you agree with us because that doesn't, you know, we, we want to hear disagreements. What are, what positions that have we taken that you're, you're not in favor of, or, you know, talk about cases that you aren't not in favor of like this one, that wacky one that just Greg talked about where I'm sorry. They, got, they got rid of an expert because he didn't practice in the state and therefore didn't know the standard of care in the state. What nuttiness is that? But in any case, Talk with you next month. Bye for now.